What is up, you guys, and welcome back to episode 51 of the Lombard Trucking Show. Here we are, over the hill, on our way, marching on to 100. At time of recording, I'm coming at you live from the world's largest truck stop, the Iowa 80, here in Walcott, Iowa. And uh, first time staying here for the night, actually, very excited about it. I've stopped through before I had to pick up a few things, but I'm happy to spend the night here and be able to do... Um, one of the things I love most to do, which is, you know, record and make content. I have air conditioning units that I've brought from Virginia. One dropped off in uh, right outside of Chicago, Addison, Illinois. The other one's going to Cedar Rapids from there. I'm going to get reloaded in East Moline and uh, take a big combine. Actually, my first overheight load down to uh, uh, somewhere in Arkansas, south of Memphis. But uh, for those of you who are watching, not listening, as you can see here, I do have a, a guest with me today. Very special guest. Honored to have her on the show. Um, she is the editorial director over at Freight Waves. And if you remember, not that long ago, I had on uh, Mr. Justin Martin over there who runs uh, the Back the Truck Up content over there at Freight Waves. But um, here we have the editorial director. She has a newsletter called Modes. Uh, her reporting on the logistics industry has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, Vox, and additional digital media sources. She's spoken about her work on ABC, NBC, NPR, and other major networks, and I am very excited to have her on the show. Miss Rachel Premack, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Yes. No, we're, we're glad you're here. Um, so, you know, let the listeners know, you know, who's, who's Rachel Premack? Where are you from? What's your story? So I'm from Michigan. I grew up in the Detroit area and lived in Michigan my whole life until I actually moved to Seoul, South Korea after graduating college. I was a freelance reporter there, just wrote about business, economic topics, a lot of, a lot of information about semiconductors, as you can imagine. And then I moved back here, moved back to the U.S. I got a job at Business Insider and I was... I didn't really have like a specific beat. It was just writing about people with interesting jobs. And about a month into reporting on that kind of nebulous beat, um, I started, I wrote a random one-off story about truck drivers and it got a really good response. It got a ton of reader feedback. And this was in 2018. And I'll, some of the feedback was mentioning this thing called the ELD mandate. And I thought, okay, I'll write another story. I'll write about this ELD thing people keep talking about. Um, and as you can imagine, that story got a lot of feedback. A lot of people read. I think definitely the editors at Business Insider were shocked that this story about what seemed like kind of an obscure regulation uh, touched such a, like, like basically set off this kind of firestorm, basically. Um, and... At the time, and even now, mainstream publications don't really cover trucking issues that well, in my opinion, uh, as we were discussing uh, before we started recording. I agree. Um, it's, they pretty much just say, oh, there's a truck driver shortage, or they talk about, oh, there's, they're protesting this, that, and the other thing about vaccines or what have you. So I think, I think you know, there's 2 million truck drivers in the U.S., they deserve to have better information about their job than what I think a lot of publications are putting out. Um, so, so yeah, so I was at Business Insider from 2018 to just this month last year, I left 
and joined Freight Waves, which is a publication where they are really focusing on uh, news that truck drivers and trucking carriers and people across the supply chain industry really use for their jobs and for their livelihoods. Um, and it's been great. It's been almost a year, almost, it's been 11 months now since I've joined Freight Waves and I've been writing a lot and learning a lot and it's, it's just been really cool. No, that's awesome. That's, it's quite the story. Let's, I, I kind of want to just back it up for a second, if you don't mind. So you went to school. Did you go to school for journalism? Where did you go? I went to the University of Michigan. I majored in history. I actually wanted to major in medieval history, but um, I, I don't know. There's no reason to major in medieval history. I mean, it's so pretty I just badass, majored. yeah. It would have been cool. It would have been cool. But I think I like started learning about things outside of medieval Europe. And I was like, okay, I can learn about other countries instead. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big um, Charlemagne guy. Cool, cool dude. Yeah. Yeah. Love that coronation of Christmas Day 800 or 900. I forget. I used to know these things, but not anymore. <laughs> okay. Cool. Um, but yeah. So yeah. you went to Michigan and right after going to Michigan, go big, go big blue, right? Yeah. Go blue say, okay. for sure. Um, <laughs> Uh, so after you go to Michigan, you go right to Korea, just going right into freelance journalism. I I had an internship um, in D.C. and then I did not get hired from that internship, which I was ultimately OK with because the person who did get hired was mostly covering high school volleyball. So I was like, OK, it's fine. <laughs> I don't have to do this. Um, and I basically just moved back to my parents' house for a few months, tried to figure out like how to get the visa, how to work this all out. And then December of that year, so I guess it was, I graduated in April and it wasn't until December of that year that I finally, finally headed off to Korea. And I was, I was very nervous at first because I had never really lived outside of Michigan. So I was like, well, yeah, what, what are you getting into here? I'm, I'm just curious, like what, what, what gave you the inkling for Korea? What did you like throw a dart at like the map yeah. or did you? Or was there so, was, was there a plan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my my it was funny. My uh, I never traveled outside the U.S. like growing up or anything like that. Besides to go to Canada, which does not count if you're from Michigan because it's just like it's like going to New Jersey. 30, yeah, it's like a thirty minute drive, twenty minute drive even. Um, so uh, my freshman year, uh, one thing that's really cool about Michigan is that it's there's lots of kids from like all over the world. So one of my one of my best friends from college that I met my first year was from Korea and she said, Hey, you can like come visit me this summer. And I was like, okay, I don't know if my parents will go for that, but I got a job, saved up money for airfare um, and ended up going. And I thought it was, it was a really, really amazing. It was really interesting. And yeah, it just like clicked with me. I don't know why I still don't really know why. And I've been to other countries since then and, Nothing really is quite as interesting or unusual as Korea um, that I've experienced. What's really interesting about Korea is that as recently as, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, it had the same GDP as, you know, a sub-Saharan African country, one of the poorest countries in the world. And now it has the 11th highest GDP in the world. So this, this is just in a few decades, it went from a really struggling, economically struggling com country to like an incredibly powerful and rich country. And you can really see that just on the subway. You see people who obviously, older people who grew up like in incredible poverty, 
um, starvation, even next to people who have had all the global opportunities in the world, speak multiple languages, using these like giant Samsung phones, um, you know, plastic surgery, everything, the whole thing. So it's just, it's such an interesting like clash between like modern and traditional and new and old. And it's, I, I don't think there's any, any, any place really quite like it. No, I, I have a few friends who were in the army who were, who were stationed over there for oh, a while. They, yeah. they, yeah, they loved it. And, uh, I mean, Hey, this is, you're almost, uh, you're almost pleading the case here for American imperialism that, you know, it, it works. Hey, we got involved, we got involved in this war and look at the result, you know, it, it you know, America yeah. got itself involved in there and Korea has done well, but also that a lot, of, it just says a lot about the Korean people and what they wanted yeah. for themselves. And, you know, they, you know, they picked themselves up through whatever they had gone through in the early 20th century. And, you know, they wanted, to, you know, they wanted to better themselves just like an individual, you know, they, they bet on themselves and South Korea is winning, but no, that's a, that's an yeah. awesome experience. And it's pretty, it, it's you, so you mentioned, you know, you come back, you get a job at business insider, you, for the fact that the ELD mandate uh, is what dropped on your desk is probably, I mean, it was probably the biggest thing to happen in trucking, at least in my opinion, from what I've seen, it's the biggest thing to happen to the industry since, uh, you know, the 1980 deregulation, because the ELD mandate, I mean, that was like the first, it was almost because obviously we have a lot of issues going on now that you report about with the, you know, fake driver shortage, aka turnover, um, and all these, you know, delays and supply chain issues. Um, but this was basically the beginning. And for the listeners who don't know, the ELD mandate is the electronic logging device. Now, the hours of service for drivers was always you can drive 11 hours a day in a 14 hour window, but you can use paper logs and you kind of just people would travel with dummy logs and you, yeah, you quote cheated the system, but it was the norm and it had been going on for a very long time. And then basically through, and Gordon and I talk about it on our other episode and, you know, you know, Werner launches, it was kind of one of the companies that did it. The federal government had made it, you know, mandated that you had to use these devices or it was an hours violation, which could cost you a lot of money. And when it did that, that was like the beginning of a huge exodus of people from the industry. So like, that's how huge it was. And I remember working at a warehouse at the time in 2017, hearing about it and seeing on the news interviews from a bunch of drivers saying, yeah, I'm selling, I'm selling my truck. I'm selling my business. We're getting out. And that was the beginning for that story to hit. Like that's, um, that's a life changing story for you that you doing yeah. that story. I mean, that's the, that's basically the beginning of your freight waves career right there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. One really quick thing about Korea, which I learned, I'm sorry to bring it way back to like five minutes ago, oh, but no, this is your show, man. One, one really quick thing. I didn't, I learned this um, a few years ago, I think. So the reason that North and South Korea got split is because after World War II, so Japan colonized Korea from 1911, I believe, until the end of World War II. They, the USSR agreed to take the top half and the US agreed to take the bottom half. So it's, it's like partially, partially the war there was basically a US-USSR creation, um, but that just, a whole other thing to get into. Oh yeah, um, kind, of like, kind of like East and West uh, Berlin, and like yeah, after the war, yeah, we chopped the yeah, we chopped yeah, the yeah. rest of the world. Yeah, we were making deals. That's how there's actually a, a tall masted sailboat. It's the it's the only masted ship uh, still commissioned like by the U.S. Coast Guard in use because Coast Guard Academy trainees. It's called the Eagle. It used to be it was a ship christened by Hitler uh, and was part of like Nazi Germany's navy. After the war, Russia or the Soviet Union seized it, and then the U.S. Mm -hmm. ended up trading 
with the Soviet Union stuff because the U.S. really wanted that ship because it was super badass. Oh, and that's, interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's got it's it's a cool, and you can see it in New London, Connecticut. So if you're ever driving up oh, into New okay. England, uh, you can see it sometimes. Like if you drive by the Coast Guard Academy, but yeah, they did that, and that's how yeah Korea got chopped up the same way. And then look what ended up happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a and even even until like the seventies, North Korea was seen as the success story of the two. Like they were the more more prosperous one, just because they were getting so much USSR aid. So, anyways, this is not a Korea podcast, even though I'm trying to make it into one. Um, so, no, yeah, I mean, it is interesting, just like the timing of everything and how I got into the industry. Um, like when I when I was first exposed was during the ELDs and then a few years into it, COVID happened. It's like very strange timing around all of this, but I feel like there's always a lot of interesting things going on in trucking. So if I had entered it at any point in the last however many years, like it probably something would have sparked, but definitely entering it with ELDs and then just a few years later, COVID hit. That was definitely weird, fortuitous timing in some ways. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, a few months after I started reporting on the trucking beat, um, Craig Fuller at Freight Waves reached out and said, you know, thanks for linking some Freight Waves content. Like, I'm in New- I go to New York sometimes, we should meet up. And we got, we got coffee, I think, at, he was speaking at a Business Insider conference very coincidentally. Um, and ever since then, I was like, this is a really cool company. I'm, I'm really interested in, you know, Maybe I'll work there. Maybe I won't. And then it, it worked out that happened. Yeah. So what, yeah. What, what kind of, what lured you away from business insider business insider is a big name. Uh, you know, we yeah. do have a lot of, you know, the, uh, the, I, there, there are uh, decent economic uh, articles that I've seen on the trucking industry that come from business insider, especially since COVID. Yeah. Um, and I probably read some of your pieces and never even knew, you know, knew or, or had read your name. So what, yeah. What got you to make the jump from, I, and I don't mean this as a slight against freight waves, but more people, so to speak, especially like consumers, non-drivers have heard of Business Insider more than freight waves. What what got you to make that jump? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Business Insider is like, there's no question BI is definitely a bigger and more red name. I think a big reason for that is partially because it just covers more topics. It's much bigger. It's older. They also cover a lot of politics things so that also really helps push up, you know, audience numbers if you're clicks. writing about Trump and this and that. Engagement. Yeah, they talk about exactly, politics. Exactly. They talk about politics and Dave Portnoy gets you clicks. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I I don't know. I just kind of felt like I'd been at BI for four years. I had never worked at a different publication. I still like am friends with lots of people who work there and think think fondly and highly of their work. I just kind of wanted something new and I also felt like it wasn't like I was like applying for other jobs or I was like on the hunt. I was just really interested in finally joining Freight Waves because I've had I've had the opportunity for a few years to make the jump, but I didn't really feel like I was ready. Like I was still pretty early in my career. I wanted to like kind of work at maybe a larger publication for a little bit longer. Um, but it was funny. I took a week off in early 2021. Wait, no, early 2022. And I don't know why it just hit me. I was like, I kind of want to work at Free Waves. I don't know what it was about this week off that like why I was thinking about my job and my future. I just kind of wanted to just be all in on supply chain, like a hundred percent. And 
even though there's a lot of really good talent at Business Insider, there's only a few people really it's only one person, one other person who Emma Cosgrove is a really great reporter who's really into supply chain topics. Um, so it's it's been cool to work at Freight Waves where I can just message anyone in the company and ask about this or that and get get a help and get like some insight for sure. Yeah, there's, so there's like even if you wanted to make supply chain more of your focus at Business Insider, you really kind of only had one person to go to. But at Freight Waves, it's a little bit more of a collective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and of course I could could and did and still do interview people outside of the company. It's just nice to like work at a place where it's all supply chain all the time. Like in all of my business insider articles, I'd have to explain like, okay, this is the spot market. This is the contract market. There's so many terms. Yeah. 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 And like, I still explain these things, but it's just, it just feels like I can kind of like get to the point a little quicker sometimes. It is, it is different. Like now, like I, I just had a, a friend of mine message me yesterday about, and he was asking me about like buying your own truck or something. And he doesn't even have a CDL yet. And it's like, and then once you start trying to type something, you're realizing like, oh my God, this guy, he's never going to understand anything that I'm trying to say. Well, when it comes to like load boards, and like once you say MC number, it's like, yeah, you know, it's like, huh? So it's, it, it is very tough. It's kind of a thing. Yeah, I, I like that. That's how your journey was though, with journalism, no bad blood at BI. That's how trucking is in some ways. Like you, like when it comes to drivers, like you'll get an itch sometimes. Like I remember when I, like, um, when I was a, a company driver, just doing regular drive and freight, like I always would get the itch to want to be yeah. a flat better. I always felt like I wanted to do it. And that's why guys do sometimes differentiate because trucking isn't one size fits all. Like there is no, like, you don't just get in a truck and, and like, you know, it's like it every, there's so many different situations, things work differently for everybody. And like, ever since I came over to like the flatbed and specialized side of things, like it's kind of more addicting, but like, and I've had the itch to do it for a while and you need to like, and same thing with you, like you've, you're a journalist, you get the itch, you know, to go yeah. over, you're like, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to specialize in this thing, not just do, you know, you know, general journalism, all kinds. I want to get into one thing. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. But, yeah. But so you, you got over to freight waves. Um, you were, uh, you know, we have our mutual friend Gord, who was, uh, you know, I did an episode with you went on his podcast, you leaned heavily in and you were actually very excited to talk about um, what I mentioned before the ELD mandate, which is deregulation. Um, yeah. you, you, you even say on his episode, like, this is something I'm like, you seem very well versed on the issue. And if, if anybody goes back and listens to it, she is very well versed on it. And, but like, you get like, I don't know, like your, the, your tone of voice, like totally changed when you talk about it, because like, almost, well, what's crazy is you're a journalist and you're in the supply chain. This industry, it does, this industry has a lot of drama and deregulation is, kind of like the center focal point of drama and we haven't gone into too much detail on it on the show so yeah to give it give it to the listeners out there you know what is deregulation yeah. what are we talking about and what did it lead into yeah yeah and you have a really interesting family history with it too which i definitely is really cool and i want, want to hear more about that so in so going back to 1935 even when trucking was a new thing really just a few guys with you know model t's hauling you know some their their produce around or maybe some like urban oh, yeah. drivers hauling I was, gonna, I was gonna mention one thing like you yeah. say in 1935 i'm you know i'm sitting right next to the museum of history for people who don't know like trucking's an industry that's only 101 years old 
Yeah. Te- and and yes, my, and my family did. Technically, they became a business in 1923. So trucking really started in like night trucking started in 1922. You had kind of stoga wagons, but yeah, the industry started just for listeners out there to know that it was it was a new industry. But yeah, go on. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like a horse and buggy driver, Model T driver. It was it was such a new industry in the 10s and 20s and 30s. Um, so basically the federal government, and this was partially prodded on by the rail industry who felt a little insecure about this new low cost, low regulation burgeoning kind of industry. They regulated the rail and the, the trucking industry to say, okay, if you want to haul freight from X city to Y city, you need to register with the federal government and get a permit to do this. Um, and so basically if you wanted to haul cotton balls from Detroit to Baltimore, you would need a permit and you'd also probably want a permit back from Baltimore to Detroit hauling something else. So it was, it was a really tightly regulated industry. You couldn't just decide one day, oh, I want a CDL and I want to go move some stuff around the country. The only, uh, exemption was agricultural goods. So if you're in the farming side, especially in the South or the Midwest, um, you could, haul whatever you want and you wouldn't need a regulation that's or a permit and that's definitely a big huge caveat so um how this worked out is that a it was really hard to open your own trucking company and b it was also really hard to get a trucking job because you teamsters had basically controlled all of these trucking employed trucking jobs um you would have to know someone or your dad your brother your neighbor whoever um so that's how trucking was until 1980 under the Carter era, not not Reagan, common mistake. Under the Carter administration, um, trucking was deregulated. That was seen as a way to bring down freight rates generally because it was true that non-regulated routes would be about 35% higher than regulated routes, you know, comparing kind of similar commodities. Um, and as a result of deregulation, freight rates certainly declined, and it be, did become easier for these large retail chain supply chains to to flourish. But the proof isn't quite there that suddenly the price of everything got cheaper as a result of deregulation. It's not clear who took all this money that came as a result of deregulation. Was it retailers? It definitely wasn't the trucking industry because wasn't the drivers. Margins are basically non-existent. Um, so it's it's really unclear if this helped Americans or if, if this helped, you know, large retail companies. Certainly, I think we can agree that things have perhaps gotten cheaper, but there's not really any data that says like, as a result of deregulation, everything's cheaper now. But that was the intention behind deregulation. And the other interesting caveat from this, and this is you know, funny thinking about this in 2023, Teamsters and unions at that era were seen as like these large, fearsome, highly organized political parties that could just take down any law and break down any system. Obviously, today, Teamsters are not seen as like a like fearsome political body. Um, And most unions, I think, besides maybe like police unions are not really that politically like 
fearsome. I keep using the word fearsome. I don't know why, but um, yeah, intimidating. They don't have as much like flex. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, deregulation is very interesting, and it kind of summarizes all these other different parts of what's happened with the U.S. We now ha are able to have these huge, you know, mega retailers with these massive global supply chains on one hand, and you know, flexible supply chains. On the other hand, this sort of key unionized job that employed millions of Americans and gave them good health benefits and retirement and vacation time and, you know, all those sorts of things that we want in a job, that job kind of evaporated into something that is a little bit, um, doesn't quite have the same sort of standards and standards of living and pay standards that it did 40, 43 years ago. Yeah, no, it, it turned a, I, the, the two like actual definitive things that you can say data wise that it did is it, um, it, yeah, it lowered wages. Um, it did take, it did remove barriers to entry, getting your CDL became easier, but also at the same time, yes, I mean, over when it comes to lowering wages, it overall turned a uh, respectable middle-class job into a job that now actually kills people, you know, like that's how, that's how hard people work out here um, where yeah. the job can kill you, where this was a job that you can work at the same company for 30 years, have a pension, retire, live in a decent, you know, live in a decent sized house, raise your family off. And that's, and that is uh, what it did. Um, no, that was, that was very, very well put. Yeah. When it comes to like uh, my family's company, like I said, they, they started uh, in nine, you know, they did start with a horse and carriage themselves in Waterbury. Um, uh, Nick and John Lombard, uh, where the, where the names, my grandfather's grandfather and his brother had started it. They did have a horse and carriage. They used to move um, ice up to the Litchfield Hills in Connecticut um, to restaurants and they would deliver luggage for, for new immigrants, new like Italian American immigrants moving wow. to Waterbury. And then it, it finally in 1923, they became Lombard brothers and, uh, you know, lasted until 1984. One, once being one of the largest motor carriers in the Northeast terminals from Baltimore all the way up to Maine. That's so um, cool. Yeah, they yeah they have terminals in, in there, and it was you know my grandfather drove for Lombard for thirty years. Um, it's it, without them, I'm definitely not doing what I'm doing now. Mm. Uh, if I could, if I had the choice, I'd rather be driving for the old Lombard uh, because uh, it would probably be a lot. I'd probably see my wife more, and things would be a lot better. I'd also maybe make a little bit more money. Yeah. Uh, and, and but yeah, and eventually what ended up happening was so deregulation. Um, you know, came in and I remember, and I've talked to my grandmother about this. My grandfather passed away in uh, 2013, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And, but mm -hmm. uh, my, you know, his, his wife is still alive, grandma Lois. And uh, she mentioned, and I've talked to her about this and she said, she, she said she remembers deregulation, like in the, like it was something that wow. stuck out prominently. And she's like, I remember, she's like, I remember your grandfather, he came home and he was, he was mad as hell. He said, they're going to let, they're going to let any motherfucker in on this thing. And it's gonna it's gonna ruin everything. It's gonna ruin the industry. It's gonna take it down. Like wow, yeah. Like it, and she like remembers it specifically because and she said and she goes, she goes. I remember he was so mad and then he was telling me that it was gonna that the unions. She said that the you know the jobs are gonna go away and they're gonna the pay's gonna go down and they're you know they're gonna like and but he was very specific on saying almost like on mentioning that how they're gonna let anybody drive. You know, he was very accurate. <laughs> yeah, they're going to let anybody drive because what's crazy is it is easy to get your CDL, which is kind of a problem because, like, look at that. When you have so pre deregulation, pre all this technology, 
you have drivers who are professionals. It takes a lot. You need to know somebody who knows you, like a family member, yeah. somebody, okay, I trust this guy enough to be behind the wheel of a truck. Now you can have somebody who's lived in the United States for all of a month, doesn't even, has never had a driver's license, and then all of a sudden can get a CDL in a matter of six weeks. They're out on I-70 in Denver by themselves in the winter. And so yeah. it is kind of crazy to think about um, that happened. And that was one of the, th like, one of the things that's like a real like actual reaction of deregulation that's really interesting i mean he was he was right that is what happened and i think it's i think it's even more shocking in the northeast specifically because i've read i don't know if you've read um i'm blanking on his name for some reason i, I there's this one book i've read of, that is it's it's kind of like a dense academic work i definitely like took me a while to get through some of it, but he talked a lot about how um, the the movement, um, the, 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 the fact that the fact that agriculture was deregulated in trucking made this sort of owner operator kind of vibe really strong in the South and the Midwest. So there were a lot of like, what we think of kind of like your classic owner operator that's maybe, you know, a little bit more um, maybe a little bit more politically conservative, more economically conservative, uh, more like probably more anti-union or anti-organized labor. And they were rallying a around deregulation for for like in the late 70s or so um, because they wanted they, they wanted owner operators to kind of like rule the situation. But I think what they didn't realize is by wiping out this like one part of the trucking economy where everyone is paid really really well that meant that their wages also declined as a result um so yeah it is it is interesting because also a lot of them i'm forgetting the exact the, the a, a lot of owner operators worked on what's called like a trip lease where you see exactly what the shipper is paying the trucking company and you're seeing exactly what you are getting paid as a result as like a as a result of that. And that doesn't and, exist anymore. Yeah, and that's like unheard of now. Now it's like, I don't know who's getting paid. I don't know what they're getting paid. Like, yeah, broker transparency. Yeah, it's yeah, transparency. yeah. Like, it's really interesting because there, there also weren't brokers pre-1980. Like, you just worked for whatever trucking company you usually work for. And whether you're a trip lease person, owner operator, or if you were just like a company driver, like there were very few brokers pre 1980 as well. Yeah. And what's crazy about that. And yeah, that's, that's one of the things that, I mean, it's they yeah, pre deregulation. Yeah. Though those outlaw truckers, those over the road guys, the bull haulers, the ones who hauled produce because yeah. it was saying exempt. That's where that whole outlaw cowboy stereotype uh, yeah. comes yeah. from. And yeah. And a lot of those guys didn't really realize that when you did, when you did deregulate the market, I mean, because at that time, a lot of those guys were also doing things that were um, it was easier for them to get away with doing illegal things like uh, throwing more extra stuff in their trailer for mm. side money, um, being 100,000 pounds overweight uh, or, or not 100,000 overweight. But <laughs> driving at a, that driving, might be too much. Yeah, it'd be too much. But driving at 100,000, yeah, driving at 100,000 pounds. Um, yeah. It's just, like they were able to because the bulk of your general freight of all kinds were from these like professional drivers. And like for the most part, even those outlaws who operated sometimes outside the, um, you know, the wheelhouse of, you know, 
of, of safety or in like the professionalism of the unions, they themselves took more pride as professionals and they still yeah. operated within the confines of like a code, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, and long haul Paul, he talks about this on the over the road podcast. He, he mentions that he says they, they operated by a certain code and there was like a respect between those guys, you know, almost like, you know, there was just honor among them in a way that was, they were their own brotherhood while mm. the Teamsters also viewed themselves as a brotherhood. And then in deregulation, yeah. you know, kind of put a stake in that as well. And I don't think people realize that. And, you know, and people always like to say that they're, oh, but it's more free market. Do you like capitalism? Do you like this? But at, at the same time, all it did, like Gordas mentions, is it shifted the regulation onto the operator. And it just yeah. let so much more come in. And the federal government is still subsidizing a lot of these major companies. The ATA is owned by these mega carriers. And the ATA is the only group that has the lobbying power to government because they have the most money. So it's just it isn't free market at the end of the day. So it's, it's yeah. Topic. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like I've heard the phrase like re-regulation, like we're, it's not even deregulated. It's just there's just different kinds of regulation, especially safety regulations ELDs are definitely a big one kind of looking at these speed limiters there's like it's not it's not like a free market for sure and you know I forget the exact number but the majority of states in the U.S. do fund CDL schools even though there's I I don't know how many I think it's about three three and a half million CDL owners and two million Americans working at any time two million truck drivers working at any time so clearly we don't have a we don't need any more cdls like we have enough people with cdls to do the jobs available in trucking what we need is people to want to stay in trucking and for it to be a decent enough job that people actually want to keep the job yeah there were people in my cdl school that were there via they were on unemployment via texas workforce and uh essentially it was their like it's either they went to CDL school and passed or if they intentionally or if they intentionally failed because they were basically required to go by the state of Texas. If they intentionally failed, like they would could no longer receive unemployment benefits like that. The, wow. <laughs> yeah, because because they had been on the benefits for so long. They're like the you know, the amount of applications. Basically, it was a way for the state to tell them, like kind of it was for Texas to tell them to kind of go back to work. And so yeah. how long do you have to be on unemployment to get like put into cdl school i'm not sure only because there was i think there was only two in my class who 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 were actually on there and they were actually like good people i I liked talking to them (laughs) but i'm not sure i'm sure it varies per state but yeah people don't people don't realize that you mentioned that and i loved actually because you said this on the on the episode with gord about how from a from a business perspective turnover has a cost yeah in business and like because like, and that's a huge thing with companies. So the current, uh, if you're not aware of my situation, I own my truck, bought it from TLG Peterbilt in Fort Smith, Arkansas, uh, mm-hmm. about a year ago. And so I don't have my own authority um, because the economy is just not there for it right now. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm leased on to a carrier called Warren Transport, who is mm-hmm. only a company that operates by independent contractors, similar to Landstar and Mercer. Mm-hmm. Um, but um yeah. So like Warren's turnover, even for owner operators is very low. Like they, they mm-hmm. do good. Like people who come here as owner operators stay, whereas like some carriers, even for the owner operator, like an owner operator will be leased on to an authority and 
they don't get paid for one week or something gets skipped and they leave. So from the top down in the industry, there's still turnover. And people don't realize that that the cost of turnover gets back to the consumer. And I think yeah. we're starting to see really the beginning stages of that. It's a factor in inflation. I didn't know if, what your opinion on that was. No, I, I definitely agree with you because, I mean, as we were discussing, trucking companies have such a have, are pretty have actually have pretty slim margins. Even even the mega carriers, these are all companies that they don't. It's not a profitable industry to be in. Um, no matter your, I mean, especially if you're on the smaller side, but also on the larger side. So any additional spending you're putting towards anything is just not. It's not like it's not ideal, and I think. The thing is, it seems like trucking companies have tried to position this in so many ways. I think there was a there was a movement by J.B. Hunt in either the 90s or the 2000s to actually like hugely increase their truck driver wages to try to see if they could just get rid of this retention issue overall or the turnover issue overall. And I believe it actually didn't work. So they just ended up lowering wages again, <laughs> or they ended up like changing some wages again. This was something that um, Professor Stephen Burks at the University of Minnesota told me about a few years ago. Um, I don't know more details about it, but um, it it's like I, I it, it seems like they don't know what to do because I don't think they want high turnover. Like I think these large carriers realize it's an issue, but like at the end of the day, if you can stay home and get a job in construction or retail or you know, even working online and you can make the same or just a little bit less than you would in trucking. Like, yeah, I would do that, especially if I'm, you know, raising a family or if I'm a woman, which I am, or like, you know, something, something that might touch, touch a subject these days, uh, saying, saying you're a woman. So, well, yeah, yeah, well just, avoid that. <laughs> just to clarify. Yeah. But, no, you're absolutely like, yeah, if you go to the CEO of J.B. Hunt or any of these companies and you'd be like, hey, do you, you know, are you, you're OK with your turnover? They're not going to be like, oh, hell yeah, I love every every three months I get new drivers. But the thing is, it's just yeah. as time goes on and as technology gets better and all these stuff, as as we're apparently progressing as a society, these conditions and everything seems to be getting worse. And even though, you know, and when you hear the terms government intervention and stuff like that people always get really scared and i remember i shared a thing that like i think that dude kevin mccarthy was saying about how like because of that guaranteeing overtime for truckers act and i think he was and uh he was interviewed on it and he said and like he was like said in the interview how he doesn't support uh the government intervention on the industry but he says he supports 18 year olds driving semi trucks but when it comes to paying drivers more he's like i don't know if we need to get involved with telling businesses how they can pay but it's like but they but how involved is the government already? And not only that, it's it's like you're like, I don't know how like when it comes to go, it's like we've come to the point to where the government may need to actually come in and do this because we're at event. We're at a level where it's not sustainable. And it's, I, I don't really know if I'd say it's well, a like you as we've been discussing, there already is government intervention in trucking. Like it's it's <laughs> not like the the like. It, it's not like the Austrian economics, like, you know, fantasy that we think it is. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is not like Adam Smith's, like, ideal industry. So yeah, like, you can't just buy a truck, hook a trailer and go, buy a truck, hook a trailer and throw watermelons in it and call it a day. Like, it's not. 
Yeah, it's not like it's it's it, there's already government intervention, so we can just give up on that whole thing. But the thing with the guaranteeing trucker overtime pay is thing is like almost every single job, except I think some agricultural job, every single other job in the country has overtime pay. Like, is this like 1700s England? Like, I think we can get everyone overtime pay or minimum wage pay. Like, a lot of truck drivers aren't even earning minimum wage. So, like, like, I don't think it should be a controversial thing to say, yeah, I think people who work should have minimum wage. I, I don't think that's like a, I'll, like, I, I apologize if I offended anyone by saying that. But if, yeah, if you, if you work 70 hours in a week, should you be paid for the hours work? And then, yeah, yeah. And like you go into, like, Gord really goes into it heavy on your guys' episode. And I mention it plenty of times on my episodes about these wait times at shippers and receivers. Luckily, yeah, I'm out yeah. of. Luckily, I'm out of that now. Flatbed, they get you in and out. It, it's on me, actually, to get in and out on chaining and securing my load. But, yeah. but it, like you would think it's like, okay, if you don't want to pay truckers overtime, if you don't want this intervention, why isn't the ATA, OIDA, or ATA has been around for 90 years, by the way, for anybody listening, and they're not doing anything. How come these industries, it's like, okay, if you don't want to up the pay or make the conditions, you know, the overall road conditions better or help with parking, why aren't you beating down the doors of these distribution centers where these trucks are sitting for five hours, wasting their time? The inefficiencies of the, like the truck, the truck's the most efficient when the wheels are turning. So why yeah. aren't you banging down the door? So if you don't want to pay more, if you don't want to do this, at least respect the time and do it. So it's, it, we're at the point to where something needs to get involved. And I, and I know we're yeah. uh, running on time and you got something, and, and I know you're, uh, you're heading out. You got to, you got some calls to make. You are a, editorial director i'll give it to you but i you did have an article recently and i wanted to touch on it because i spend a lot of time on social media flaming this guy and flaming it but you wrote something about the tesla semi truck that i think is it's just another point because it's great because you're not a driver see i speak from the point of view of um i mean that it's not economically friendly it's mined by child slave labor it still plugs into coal and natural gas power and and all that i give the whole economics behind how much they suck but you brought up a really good point about how they're just not cool. Yeah. I mean, they're not like the thing is like, okay. I think, I don't think truck drivers think they're cool is, is definitely one thing. Exactly. The other thing is that they keep marketing it as if it's a B to C product. And there aren't like, yeah, there are obviously owner operators who, if I guess if they're big Tesla fans, which I don't get the sense that they're, that's really a thing. Um, I, I just don't really um like I'm just picturing the buyer at I don't know at like Schneider like this is a person who needs to make like very prudent economic decisions for their fleet as we've been discussing it's a low margin industry you're not really gonna like take a risk and do this 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 truck this uh tractor that doesn't like doesn't seem to have like a charging network or a maintenance network or like what the, the infrastructure is not there. For yeah. It. Yeah. It's just not a prudent economic choice. And I think buying a Tesla, if you're a regular consumer and maybe you live in California and you can just charge it wherever you are, but um, you know, it doesn't, and you you're parking at home every night, but if you're a truck driver, you're not going home every night where you can park your truck and plug it in. Like, it's already such a challenge trying to find any sort of 
parking and any sort of like place to fuel up and and park and rest your head let alone having to find a place to fuel up and that there's already so few electronic um charging stations and there's already so few parking stations it's just like maybe they'll be able to pull this off but I'm not like I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't think it would be, it could be pulled off, especially anytime soon either. And I know you've probably you guys have been in touch probably with Chase Barber, who's doing uh, doing good work at Edison Motors with his diesel hybrid electric engine. Yeah, yeah. Um, that he's putting in old Kenworth trucks that people actually want to drive. Like, look, yeah. I mean, people don't realize like the average age of this industry is in the 50s. Uh, I mean, we like we look at friends like our, you know, our mutual friend Gord, like the type of guy he is. There's a lot of people in this industry are, you know, salt of the earth type guys. They don't want to drive this bullshit from the Jetsons like they do. They want something they like. Like it's like how many Instagram pages you go through with long nose Pete's and Chrome stacks like people love even non drivers love that stuff. And if, and then, yeah, not only that, the, the network just isn't there. And Chase Barber talks about how, how much agricultural land you're going to need to flood to power the you know that build the dams that are going to power all of this stuff that you know you're going to need the the industrial power of uh, the electrical power of cities to charge all these trucks it's really not just not there yeah but, um before i let you go what uh what else you got going on what's in the future what's going on at the rachel premac workshop right now so i so i actually am writing something on elds that will hearkening back to my youth, I guess. Um, it's going to publish Monday, March 27th. We had this whole um, series on ELDs publishing the last week of March in honor of the five-year anniversary of ELDs. Day anniversary. Yes, yeah. Um, so I'm publishing something just kind of breaking down the safety claims and how the original claim was that it would save all these deaths, it would save all these road accidents and how research has shown that actually it's increased speed and probably has not been a amazing thing for safety. Talking to some professors and some truck drivers and also got some quotes from the FMCSA itself. So got, got a lot of interesting viewpoints in that piece. Yeah. And um, what else do I have going on? I'm writing something about produce season that's going to come out on Monday. It seems like that's not going great. There's been a lot of flooding in California. Um, it's affecting that, the rates. Have you ever heard all about it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's one other thing. Oh, I'm also going to be writing about uh, the big rail merger between Kansas City Southern and Canadian Pacific, I think for later next week as well. And that's the first major rail merger we've seen in 25 years. So it's I didn't even know that. That's that'll be yeah. interesting. It kind of flew under the radar, which is crazy because generally the Biden administration has been pretty anti-mergers, but somehow this one got approved. It's pretty it's it's kind of surprising. Well, yeah, you just got to look and see whose bank accounts are linked to which investment. Yeah. yeah, see who's paying off who. That's that's uh that's how it works. That the ELD article, that'll be very interesting and anybody listening, we're going to need to share that out there because you know, kind of like how we saw for three years where people kept saying, trust the science, trust the data, trust the science. Well, here here's some data and science that's about to come yeah. out that maybe the general public and, you know, the federal government should start paying attention to and realize that perhaps the encroachment of big tech uh, onto industries like trucking isn't here to save anybody. It's just here to make people a lot of money. But um, like uh, before we let you go, I always want to let the people know or I always want you to let the people know. Where can everybody go find you and follow you? Uh, what platforms yeah. you're on, everything like that. 
So um, you can subscribe to my newsletter at freightwaves.com slash modes, or I'm on Twitter at RRPRE, or just search Rachel Premack, and I'm on I'm on LinkedIn. I don't, I don't know. Some people like LinkedIn. Oh, <laughs> I don't. I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big LinkedIn ship poster, so yeah. expect the connection request. If you actually are, I'm going to add you on LinkedIn because I yeah, have, I, yeah. People on I LinkedIn post... are so weird. They're just like they're weirdly positive about everything, or they're really like mean about everything. No one yeah. has a sense of humor like on Twitter. And I and I go and I go into that on LinkedIn. Like I will comment on things because like some people they make these posts like, "What do you like more, work from home, hybrid, or office?" And I'll and I've commented on a post saying, "I want truck drivers to be able to have a toilet at night." Like uh, I will, yeah. Uh, yeah I, I'll do like yeah. stuff like that. I, I do. I've upped the the ship posting on LinkedIn. It's it's become one of my favorite favorite platforms for sure. But it's all right. a lot of sales guys, I think. Oh and, man, yeah. DMs, yeah. yeah. People who always want to offer me some sort of fucking insurance and stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. How how are you maintaining your fleet? I'm like, dude, I don't, I'm. Fucking, yeah, <laughs> I'm one is. person. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sale. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's all salespeople. It's wild, but okay, that's great. So they know where to find you. And as always, guys, check out freightwaves.com. Um, they're some of the most honest freight news you're going to get, uh, from a perspective that actually matters, not just regurgitated bullshit from the ATA, uh, and OIDA and, uh, bought and paid for, uh, politicians and such. Rachel, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. Um, we'll do this. We're going to, we'll do a follow-up. One of these times, are you going to get Matt's real quick before you no, go? No, I'm not. Unfortunately, okay. the I'm going to go next show. year. I've been meaning to go and. I couldn't go this year, but next year I will go. Next year. We'll make it happen. 2024 yeah. election year. I'm sure it'll be hot and heavy. Yeah. yeah. The, the drama will be good. So no, yeah. we'll, we'll do a follow-up, especially because, you know, and when you're free, we'll schedule again to talk about this ELD stuff. Cause let's try to, I want to try to make some waves and rattle some cages with it because it's something that people are very, people still harp on it. You know, a lot of people haven't let it go from the ELD. Yeah. So thanks again for, for coming on guys, you know where to find her. And as always, if you ever want to talk, you know, I'll be here. Peace. Thanks.